Welcome to Mecca Talks, your access all areas pass to the beauty, business and lifestyle experts we call our community. I'm Kate Blythe, Chief Marketing Officer here at Mecca and your host. In today's episode, I'm chatting to powerhouse feminist writer, broadcaster and speaker, Clementine Ford. Hi, everyone. So we've just had International Day of the Girl, and actually it was the 10th anniversary of International Day of the Girl at that, which is pretty incredible, really. This day is a reminder for us to recognise the adversity that the world's 600 million girls face, stopping them from harnessing the resources and support to fulfil their potential. Time and time again, these girls have shown that given the skills and the opportunities, they can be the change makers driving progress in their communities. We need to invest in a future that believes in their agency, leadership and potential. At Mecca, we're doing our piece via our our philanthropic arm, Empower, through which we've reached our goal two years early to support 10,000 girls through secondary school. We'll put more details about Empower in the episode notes so you can learn about our new commitments and ambitions. On to today's interview, which is a big one for us. We're super excited and we couldn't think of anyone more fitting to join us in this week of International Day of the Girl than fearless feminist and published author Clementine Ford. Passionate about social justice and challenging cultural ideas around topics like gender equality, marriage, female happiness and public health, Clementine is a true thought leader and in her words, the ultimate example of fighting like a girl. Let's get into the interview. Welcome, Clementine. I'm so excited to have you here today on Mecca Talks. And today we're going to be really talking about all sorts of things, obviously, that we want to get to, but International Day of the Girl and everything that that, you know, sort of whole day brings out for lots of people as well. And also, your story has been so influential around these topics and we're just thrilled to have you here to hear your voice and to hear what you have to say so before we jump in in a nutshell and I don't know if you can do a nutshell Mm -hmm. um tell us a little bit about you and your story well I'm not very good at nutshells (laughs) um I do talk a lot but I just wanted to say as well firstly Kate it's so nice to meet you thank you so much I love Mecca and I'm not just saying that because I'm here (laughs) I am a level four beauty loop you're in Mecca colours today. I so, like it. Oh, it wasn't unintentional, but, you know, <laughs> here we are. Um, yeah, I really, really love Mecca and I love buying things from Mecca all the time. So it's thrilling to be here. Uh, me in a nutshell, one of the things, and I saw it again yesterday, one of the things that I'm always described as, which I, I sort of flip between eye-rolling and also laughing and then sometimes just feeling annoyed about it, is it's always controversial writer and mm. feminist controversial something clementine ford interesting how does that make you yeah, feel is it sort of like i'm not i'm speaking the truth it's just not not controversial is do you feel like that's a misconception i do but it's not so much even that it's a misconception so for people who don't know me which of course will be a lot of people um i'm a writer i'm mostly known as a feminist writer i've written three books i have a colored history mm-hmm. when it comes to some impulsive social media posts but mostly what I'm what I do is I'm driven by a really strong desire for gender equality yeah. and for justice for women in particular so I do get frustrated by this label of controversial yeah. because I don't think there's anything controversial about wanting women to live in a world where we're safe from violence yeah. physical sexual violence economic violence where we are not Um, you know, subject to sexism on a sort of a casual scale, but also misogyny on a really Mm. extreme level, where as a mother now, I, you know, having gone through birth, I understand how many people who've gone through birth are walking around with birth injuries that Mm. haven't been fixed or even addressed. And, you know, so many of them don't even feel like they can talk about because you're encouraged to be a mother, but you're also shamed for speaking about the realities of it. Mm -hmm. I don't think that there's anything controversial about trying to bring light to those issues I and agree. how they affect us all as women. But evidently we're meant to do that in particularly polite ways and I guess that's that's what makes me controversial, Kate, is that I'm not polite about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're a change maker and I think you're opening up discussion and I think those discussions are incredibly important discussions to be had and it's not controversial, you're speaking the truth and I think that's the absolute antithesis of controversial re- in reality. So, you know, keep keep moving things forward, Thank Clementine, because actually it's inc- these are incredibly important topics and as a mother myself, totally get it. Like mm-hmm. it's, you know, we, 
we we think it's all like roses and lying mm. in you know lying in fields holding babies and feeling all motherly and maternal actually it's pretty hardcore mm. so these are conversations that we do need to address when we talk about your colored history i want to hear a bit about that like um and what sparks those kind of moments of feeling like you need to say something like what mm. is it that inspires you to speak out well, I'm 41 years old now and I started, I, I got my first column in a newspaper that I was, I was living in Adelaide at the time and I was given a column in the Sunday Mail, which is a fairly conservative family newspaper. <laughs> and I, of course, I was passionate about feminist topics then in a much less informed way than I think I am now. And the reason I mentioned my ages is because I think when you're 26, 27, which is when I started mm-hmm. writing professionally, you do have fire. You've yeah. got a passion that is not necessarily tempered by experience yeah. or by um, sense mm-hmm. sometimes. And that's great. That is the that is the domain of youth is to be yes. impetuous and passionate and to say things that hopefully they don't regret too much later but that they might regret just a little bit (laughs) in terms of how they said them maybe and then you know you work for 16 years and you're 41 and you have 16 years my maths error is bad 15 years you're 41 you have views that are as strident but you've become a lot more articulate in Mm. how you express them a lot smarter in how you try and translate your messages inevitably yeah. Over the course of, of course. 15 years, there's going to be times when you speak out of turn or you um, you say something that you think was a joke but that other people take yeah. badly. Or, and I think this is especially true when you're operating in a feminist environment, you are not given anywhere near the amount of forgiveness mm-hmm. that is given to white men in this country mm-hmm. for saying things that are objectionable. You say one thing that they, you know, and I've definitely said some things that, I would take back now, but that contextually I still understood at the time where they Mm. were coming from. One of the things that I found so disheartening but also validating over the course of my career is realising that I am not imagining it when I say that women are silenced and we're undermined and we're made to feel embarrassed about the stridency of our views. You know that that's totally, not true. of course. And I think it's I think it's fascinating. This week we've um, or we've just recently launched this Women in Design Commission, um, part of our Empower program, and it's this incredible commission where we work to support a female architect or designer let me guess why isn't this open for men (laughs) no we never had that we never had that wait (laughs) but what we what we did when we launched it was we actually got the australians investors and women uh, as did a breakfast and what was so interesting about it it sparked this discussion about actually you know it's not just about sort of championing women and equality but actually it's about housing it's about social housing mm-hmm. it's care it's it's inequality in domestic environments and actually the conversations around that and you know obviously covid sent women back so many years because of the fact that so many mothers had to stop working to be at home to look after the children the inequality in that in itself is extreme but these conversations have to happen because if you don't mm. talk about it there won't be any change and i think it's incredibly empowering to hear from from you and to hear your views and to for you to be championing these ideas and these conversations because if you don't who will and we all have to have a voice right well that's the thing and you know it's so interesting that you say that because you may get people writing to you saying why are you having that horrible woman on your podcast don't you know she said this thing about men so the context for the worst thing i've ever said publicly was during covid it was right at the start of 2020 and You know, I really feel like in Australia we hadn't particularly, you know, Victoria wasn't in lockdown at that point. So we were kind of being inoculated a little bit from... Yeah, protected. Yeah, we Mm. we weren't in London. We weren't seeing ambulances, you know, being... People like being triaged in ambulances Mm. outside hospitals. So to a degree it was kind of all theoretical still. And I read an article about how COVID was already impacting women and forcing women to leave their jobs because suddenly the children were at home mm-hmm. and the men that they were partnered with weren't taking care of them. So the women were the ones who were, who were suffering this huge economic setback. And there was this one story in particular where a woman was a CEO of her own company and her husband had taken a sabbatical prior to COVID. And uh, two days in to the child being, four-year-old child being home from childcare, only one child in the family, he said to her, I can't do this. You need, mm-hmm. to, you need to do it. So she quit her job. He wasn't working. She quit her job. And she took on this domestic care load. And I wrote a, a really long thread about the domestic inequality that women mm. experience, the economic 
damage that we suffer. And the last tweet I wrote was, honestly, the coronavirus isn't killing men fast enough, which is, look, I will be the first to say now, a horrendous thing to say. I think that sort of theoretical distance that we had made it easier for me to think that, it, you know, I didn't realise that it was yeah, actually sure. at that point having such an impact on men's lives. My approach with jokes is, you know, and also as women, we're always told that we have to just suck it up when male <laughs> comics joke about rape, joke about domestic yeah. abuse. Oh, it's dark humour. It's dark humour. We need to be able to laugh at things to be able to cope with them. It's like, isn't it funny how all the things you need to be able to laugh at to cope with are the things that affect us, mm. not you, us. And so by that argument, it was an expression of rage done in a sort of like very sarcastic way mm. that I still think as much as I, you know, really regret having said that, and I, I don't ever want to really hurt people who are suffering, I still think that the, co the bigger context of it was so easily ignored by every outlet that commented on it because they didn't want to talk about what, what I was actually saying. Yeah, so do you think it, it basically blew your actual point and your context out the water because everybody mm. could go after the, the final negative yes. comment. So actually your point about domestic inequality really didn't come into the fore yeah, because it was like washed, it was brushed under the table along with all the laundry and, and along with all the, fault. yeah. And that's, and that's, that, the, real, that's the impulsivity, you know, for sure, for sure. You get, you get overwhelmed by, not that I'm saying, I'm not ever, I'm not trying to excuse anything that I've said where I really truly feel regret for it. It is sort of affecting to be in an environment work-wise where for years you are receiving the most horrific news about women, mm. personal stories that are shared with you, like th news stories that you wade through to, you know, when I wrote Boys Will Be Boys, there's a lot of stuff in there that's really, really challenging about um, men's behaviour in the world, you know, and women's suffering because of it and men's suffering at the hands of violence as well. And I think that when you're in that environment all the time, you begin to become a little bit, not inoculated against it, but a little bit impervious to the shock of it. Yeah, of course. It's like a numbing, isn't it? Yeah, you, numbing is the right word. Mm. So you've, you become a little bit numbed. So then it becomes easier for you to say things that shock other people mm -hmm. because you think, but this is the environment that we're all in, surely. Mm. This, is, this is what, you know, I've seen I see way worse things in my day-to-day -day life in terms of the things that women write to me about that they've experienced, mm. the suffering that they've had, the trauma that they've gone through, than anything I've said in a tweet. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of like this very clever trick that yeah. mainstream society plays where if you're a woman who speaks about violence and men's violence against women, obviously not all men perpetrate violence, but the majority of violence in the world is perpetrated by men mm -hmm. and women suffer in a very specific way, which... One in three of us have experience of. That's not convenient for society for people to talk about because then it might require us actually changing. It might require us going to breakfasts and hearing about, you know, the structural inequality. Yeah. The, the fact that um, I, I learned today that 38% of women in Australia retire into poverty. This is this is the thing. I think it's yeah. the over 55s are the, the biggest tranche of um, homeless mm -hmm. and, and it's with females mm. and it's actually the inequality around that and the actual shock. I mean, I was mm. horrified. Mm. Wouldn't it be amazing to get the over 55 year old female population back into work? I mean, these are genius yes. people with incredible experience. I think that's a movement that needs to happen like immediately. And many of them have had children, not all of them, not everyone needs to have a child. Children are not necessarily the ticket to happiness, certainly for women. They're often a ticket to a lot of domestic labour. Mm -hmm. But we also have this kind of, you know, if you want to think about the way that the status quo wants to hold on to a mythological mythological way of being, you know, so we can't talk about the violence that women experience because that's too much for people. So we need to do it in nice, polite ways. If we have, for example, a society that says to women, the most important thing you can do is have children. If you don't have children, then you won't know what true happiness is. You, you'll be old and alone and single and sad and just good luck with your cats. <laughs> All of those stereotypes, we have that. And then we also, at the same time, ignore the very real fact that a lot of that over 55-year-old group had children without choice. They didn't have options. Yeah. They just had them. 
And now they're being met by the same society that says to other women, you need to have children in order to have happiness, saying, we don't give a shit about you. We don't care about whether or not you're living out of your cars because you've got no money, because we've systematically stripped away every opportunity that you've had your entire life to be independent. Mm, Yeah, it's fascinating. And I know you said you're referred to as a feminist. Would you say that that is still relevant today? Or would you say for you that it's your you're a feminist or are you more about gender equality? What, where do you see yourself or see your voice um, in that whole world? Mm. I think it's as relevant today as ever for a couple of reasons, one of which is, you know, I, I feel very proud to call myself a feminist. I feel like calling myself a feminist not only signifies allegiance to the movement, but it signifies allegiance to other women and it also pays respect and homage to the feminists of the past who fought so hard you know, this idea that somehow the suffragettes were polite and men gave them the vote. Like, that's absolute bullshit. Yeah. Suffragettes died. Yeah. They fought. For their right to the yeah, vote. Yeah, absolutely. Men didn't give it to women. We fought for it. Yeah. So I feel like to call myself a feminist and to not shy away from that word, to not capitulate to society's expectations that I be nice about it, is paying respect to the women who fought before yeah. us. But also, I mean, sort of realistically speaking, whether or not you call yourself a feminist or a puffy pink unicorn, what matters is what you do in those roles. If feminism was called puffy pink unicorns, people would be like, I don't like those puffy pink unicorns. I think they just go too far. You know, well, of course I believe in equality, but I would never call myself a puffy pink unicorn. (laughs) It's not really about the word. It's about what the word represents. Exactly. And I think that's that's my point is that, you know, the relevance of that movement, it's still absolutely relevant. And it's and these these conversations and these discussions, I think, are incredibly important. And when we look back to your, like, um, amazingly colourful, fluffy pink unicorn history (laughs) with your pink hair today, which I'm loving, when you were that little girl, like, where did where did this passion come from? Was it always in was it always in there? Did you feel that you needed to use your voice? Like, tell me a little bit about that young Clementine. I have always been a justice-oriented person, which sounds like one of those humble brags that people have just always been very into justice. Um, But I did have a very strong sense of what was fair when I was young, although I didn't have a lot of confidence in myself as I grew into adolescence, the way that so many girls are stripped of their confidence. You know, there was a time when I was a kid where I had no concept of my body, Mm. only that it could move through the world and that it could feel good or that I could eat things it was just it was really just a utilitarian purpose and then like so many of us I reached the age of 10 and I started being very aware that uh, my body was being looked at and not in positive ways at the time I I thought and fat is just a word it's not a an insult but at the time I mean obviously we still live in a very fat phobic society where it's imbued with Mm. negativity and we also know that our bodies are judged as girls and women and so I started to develop very strong insecurities, you know, like a lot of girls, I developed an eating disorder. My teenage years were racked with insecurities, um, lack of confidence, a, a, you know, an increase in my mental health issues. I have OCD and I, I started developing that at 12. So I felt, I feel like that justice orientation was always there, but whether or not I had the confidence yeah. to speak out at school no. Yeah. But at home, definitely, I yeah. was like, that's not fair that I had a br- an older brother and a sister and it kind of manifested just in the way that I understood the domestic inequality yeah. in the home, you know? Yeah, for sure. And so when you'd speak up at home and then did you realise this is in my heart and soul? I, I feel like I this is my voice and I need to use it. Was there, a, from where you're sitting now, mm. all that journey to get to where you are today and to be a celebrated, controversial mm. author, <laughs> as as you have been, mm. been described, how, how did you kind of get through those tricky years and get to a place now where you're feeling, you know, you have that hindsight, but you've also got this amazing view of what's to come as well? Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I had, I was lucky in that I, my family moved around a lot 
when I was growing up because of my dad's job. So I lived in the Middle East. I grew up in the Middle East. I lived in England for a couple of years and then we ended up in Australia. And that is a very tough thing for a kid to go through, but it's yeah. also incredibly fortifying. And it's, Resilience, right? Yeah, like you increase your resilience. You learn how to, even if you're feeling deeply insecure inside, you learn how to go into a new environment and just kind of like steel yourself against mm-hmm. it. And I think that um, one of the things that helped me, I guess, was that, you know, we all of us have some experience when we're adolescents of feeling in, you know, shy about expressing ourselves. And again, particularly as girls, we we become very used to our opinions if they are, the stronger they are, being met with ridicule or being met with um, derision. But one of the things that I just sort of happened, I guess, naturally was when I was 16, I just moved to schools again and I just got sick of being quiet mm-hmm. all the time. I just got sick and tired of not saying things so as not to draw attention to myself. Because you know, I was smart at school and I had opinions. I just wasn't sharing them. And then I just did it one day. And how did it make you feel? Well, I remember this girl at school who I actually ended up becoming friends with shared an opinion in English class. It sounds so like ridiculous and obviously like people go through way worse stuff than this. But I I said something and I heard her from across the room say, and I'm not making this up. I know it sounds made up, but she said to one of the other girls, "Who who does she think she is? She's new. And, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I am new and maybe that's who I could be. Now. Yeah. You know, we Women and girls are always told who we are mm-hmm. and there's not a lot of support for us to figure out who we are by ourselves. So we conform often. But one thing that we're all attracted to is this idea of reinvention, which is why I love makeup so much as well. Yeah. Is that, you know, you can use I it love to reinvent that. yourself. And I feel like maybe in that moment I was just like, yeah, I am you mm. and this is who I can be. I can actually be that person who uses their voice. And once I started doing it, I said this in my first book, once I started doing it, I realised that no matter how frightening it is and no matter how much vitriol you attract because of it, and certainly throughout my career I've received some of the most shocking abuse in terms of messages and descriptions of things men, wow. men want to do to me, but it really does just kind of like wash off my back now because there's I realized there's nothing you can there's nothing someone can say to you about how you look about what they want to do to you about you know your mental health there's nothing they can say that makes you feel worse than sitting there and being complicit in your own silence Mm -hmm. and not saying what's inside you because you're afraid and people women are afraid for very good reason I'm not saying that if you don't speak up because of fear that there's something wrong with you I get it what I'm saying is that if you can challenge yourself to break out of that fear and face the fear at least for the first time, the first time you do it is the worst time you'll do it. Yeah. Because the more you do it, the more you're actually like, this is great. It's so great to use my for voice. Sure. And I don't care what they say about me. And that like shaking off that insecurity and like sort of moving through it is like incredibly empowering in itself. And I think of all of the the girls and the guys as well who really suffered through COVID, sitting at home on Zoom calls in their classrooms, you know, mm. not having a voice, feeling smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And that impact, I think, is going to have been absolutely huge. Mm-hmm. And if people can feel and hear that, be inspired by the story of actually speaking up again and having a voice, no matter what your voice is and what you want to say, I think is really something that we should all be championing. And you talked a little bit about beauty mm-hmm. and it's this reinvention and this power that you have to be different characters and different moments and to express yourself in different ways. And it's such an incredible um, way of looking at beauty and something that we are super, super in tune with at Mecca. And, and actually tell me a little bit about that. So you're, you've just sort of found your voice as a, as a young girl and you're finding your own place in the world and you've hopefully at that point stopped moving around so much. Mm-hmm. How did you sort of become the person you are today? I mean, you are really expressive. You've, you know, you quite clearly love beauty. You find confidence and power in your own definition of beauty. How did you get to that? Well, that's really recent, actually, because I spent, you know, at the same time as I was discovering the power of my voice and using that to feel better about myself than I had my entire teenage years, uh, you know, going back really to the that sort of joy that I had as a little girl where I was just free. Mm. And that was wonderful. But I, you know, I am also live in the world and I'm subject to the same 
pressures Mm -hmm. of the world and I felt all through my 20s really ugly and was always constantly kind of obsessed with my body and how it looks different quite frequently. So I felt like I never felt confident in that area and to a degree I almost rejected, I didn't reject makeup or anything like that, I still wore it but I didn't, I wasn't at all as playful with it as I am now because I, I sort of felt really insecure about looking to be trying to be a girl. Yes. You know, that if I if I put too much effort yeah, into my appearance, it, not that I feared that I wouldn't look feminist, but that I th- I thought I might look ridiculous because people right. would look at me and go, <laughs> it's a bit of a joke that you think that you're feminine, you know. And obviously now I just have a completely different perception yeah. of what that word even means, feminine. But I, I really didn't feel confident in that regard. And I also said a lot of silly things that, you know, again, it's the prerogative of people in their 20s to say things about the future that they will change their minds on later. And I, I think at the time I was like, <laughs> I just don't understand why people get Botox and I will never do that. Grow old gracefully, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> then, of course, I reached my late 30s and I had a child, which ages you instantly. <laughs> I was like, mm, Botox. <laughs> um, you know, and actually at the start of lockdown when I was trapped in my apartment like everyone else, and I'd gotten a little bit into beauty by that stage. You know, I've always played with my hair and stuff. But I was like, I'm going to learn how to do makeup. Yeah, great. And that was when I became a level three. Before <laughs> level four was introduced, a level three a beauty, beauty looper. member. Because I just, I went to Mecca and I just started buying stuff. Part of that was kind of like, you know, it's the dopamine hit of packages arriving. because Gorgeous, yeah. You can leave the house. But but as it came, I was like, this is really fun. It's fun. And also, yeah. isn't it, you know, you, you mentioned Botox and, you, were, you know, this used to be this hidden thing that women did to try and mm-hmm. make themselves, they want to do it to make themselves feel better and look better for themselves. Yeah. They didn't want anyone to know. They just wanted everyone to think, oh, that she looks a bit more well-rested. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, isn't it interesting how that, conversations changing as well Mm. people are saying you know oh I had Botox last week can you tell Mm. like actually being proud of the fact that you know I'm owning this Mm. I'm not hiding behind anything and that's a very different conversation to the one you know years ago where people would go into a dark room and don't let anyone see me and it's like who cares right as long Mm. as you're feeling your own power Mm. it doesn't really matter how what how and what you're doing to make yourself feel great well it's interesting as well because when I started doing it and playing with it. And I used to do, you know, a kind of DIY makeup tutorials on my Instagram page, which w- I should stress, were not at all like professional YouTube makeup tutorials, but they weren't meant to be. I was yeah. basically just saying to other women my age, yeah. mums usually, hey, look, this is how, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm figuring out this yeah. morning. I did get a little bit of pushback from some people on social media who wanted to say oh well you're what's this rubbish why are you focusing on this now this is you used to be a serious feminist (laughs) and I thought isn't that so at the time I remember just kind of rolling my eyes and thinking isn't that so interesting that to be a serious thinker to be a serious political thinker and to be a woman you're not also allowed to have fun you're not also allowed to be aesthetically daring you're not allowed to like color and honestly, I know people say things like, well, of course you're wearing it for men. Of course you're wearing it for patriarchy. It's like, I could not give less of a shit. Yeah. I promise you. You're doing it for yourself. About what men think about me. Whether or not I'm doing it because I live in a society that give, confers some sort of privileges to you if, you if you conform in that way. I mean, none of us live in a vacuum. Of course we make choices based on what we're informed by. But I also think it's just colour. Like I've got a kid yeah. who loves to, you know, put makeup on too. He maybe will wear it when he's older, I'm not sure, but I know that his impulse in doing it now is because he likes colour. So why do we associate the idea of, like, performance and dress and, um, you know, beauty, aesthetics, play with something that's frivolous and shameful? It's because it's associated with women and anything women like is considered by the culture to be meaningless. And it is just such an amazing creative expression. And, you know, I think that the power of being able to play with makeup and beauty and not to your point, you're doing it for you, right? You're doing it for yourself and you're doing it because why wouldn't you? And why should anyone else choose mm. to tell you how you should be? It's not putting you on your box, in your box and saying that's all you can be. You can be who you want to be and you can dress mm. how you want to be. And I think that's really important for for everybody to remember is ultimately it's about creativity mm-hmm. and fun and actually your own presence and what you believe 
what makes you feel good ultimately? Mm. I don't see how it's any different, honestly, to wearing, you know, a nice outfit. Yeah. Except that, again, it's typically associated with women and therefore it's, um, you know, thought to be vanity driven. I mean, there's something as a, uh, when you were saying the thing about Botox, I was thinking about how one of the reasons why I think I'm drawn to getting Botox and also why I assume other people are drawn to getting it isn't just because you, you when you're suddenly confronted by the reality of <laughs> aging, you're like, oh, God, I'm going to smooth those wrinkles out. And it's not that I'm trying to defy age. I love getting older. Yeah. I love the learning more. Yeah. I would never – I wouldn't pay any amount of money – I wouldn't be paid any amount of money in the world to go back to my 20s. Yeah. You know, I love being 40. I'm looking forward to my 50s. I'm not looking forward to the kind of creaking bones of it. No, no, no. That's that's definitely, like, not so fun. But Yeah, but I, but I think that there's something in – it's the visible confrontation with your own mortality that starts to get you definitely as well as the wrinkles. You know, you definitely. think because inside I feel eighteen. Yeah, and you're like, I don't want to. The more I see of the age, yeah, <laughs> the closer I get to being old, and that means the closer I get to my own mortality. So it's not actually just about the aesthetics, although of course, like that plays into it. But I, I really do think that it's about marrying the two things that you, the way that you feel inside, which as you said, like, I don't feel any, I feel smarter. Yeah. But I don't feel like what I thought 41 year olds were like when yeah. I was 20. No, no, no. I thought they were just like definitely over the hill. <laughs> and there's also something I think powerful in, I mean, I'm sure people would maybe have a critique for this, but I feel like it's a compelling reason for me. I am so much more confident as a woman now, sexually, mm. romantically, like independently at 41 than I ever felt when I was in my 20s. Like I'm so happy being, I live, I've got a housemate, my friend Bonnie's moved in with me now. I would never like relive with anyone ever again. Mm. I'm not even sure if I want to repartner. Doesn't mean I don't date. Doesn't mean yeah. that I don't have fun. I feel so strongly committed to my independence and the like the thrilling life that I get to live and confident physically in a way that I never did, as I said, when I was in my 20s, that there is something about like having the opportunity, if you're lucky enough to have it, to join those two states together. So women are told your 20s are your physical prime. Mm -hmm. That's when you're, but, yeah. the, but you're not meant to be smart and independent in your 20s. You're meant to be a little bit kind of, you know, a bit of an ingenue and yeah. you're meant to kind of be led, easily led. And then when you get to your 40s, well, you might be independent, but you know, you, no one wants you like this sort of aging woman yeah, kind of it's the sort of you know that hollywood adage of yes. you know you being suddenly and well you're off the casting list once you hit a certain yeah. age and no one yeah. looks at you anymore which is just tragic but imagine if you could be both yeah i mean you'll never be 25 again you'll never have that collagen yeah true and they're sort of firmness of skin <laughs> but a 25 year old no matter how smart they are and no matter how you know politically kind of switched on they are they will also never just simply by virtue of being 20 years younger, have the life experience of a 45-year-old woman. And the, and the you know, especially if that 45-year-old woman has been in serious relationships, has travelled through or has sort of surpassed the romantic fantasy that we kind of hold on yeah. to when we're young and come to a more realistic understanding of how the world is and how it works and what she wants for herself. Like, But if you could have at least a glimpse of both of those things at the same time, that feels pretty intoxicating to me. Super intoxicating. When you were starting out and you were writing for newspapers and you were thinking, okay, this is, uh, you know what, I feel like I want to get this message out. I want to I open up this dialogue. And you started writing books and you said you've written three books. Mm -hmm. Tell me a bit about those books, but also tell me a bit about what books are to come. Because mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a few in that mind of yours. Well, there is one that I'm working on at the moment, which I'll tell you about in a second. Uh, so the three books that I've written are in order, Fight Like a Girl, which came out in 2016, Boys Will Be Boys, which came out in 2018, and then How We Love, which is a memoir that came out last year. And Fight Like a Girl is sort of described as a memoir slash manifesto. It's about what it feels like to be a girl in the world and to, you know, there's a lot in there about adolescence, my, my own memories of kind of becoming aware of this sort of simmering danger that mm -hmm. exists around you as a girl, which of course you're then gaslit by society about because, well, why were you walking down the street wearing that? Don't you know what can happen to you? But also you're not ever allowed to say that the world is dangerous for you because that's unfair and mean and you're just being paranoid, you know. So we become so used to 
gaslighting ourselves as well because the goalposts are always shifting and that is how it's designed. Mm -hmm. The patriarchy that we live in, that everyone lives in, that oppresses everybody in different ways is meant to be invisible to us. Mm. And when we point at it and we say the emperor is not wearing any clothes, they're like, what are you talking about? He's clearly wearing clothes. You're a crazy person. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it was about really kind of those issues. You know, I talked about rape culture, about... um, the insults that are used against women to yeah. keep us quiet and to keep us compliant and, and in line. And it's a book that has really spoken to a lot of girls and women of all ages because it's, it is their experience. But for many of us, we didn't know other people thought that way because we were always told that only deranged women feel that mm. way. You know, like the, the sort of shoveling um, un shoveling dis, di, uh, troubled and, and um, troublesome yes. women down by the swamp and calling them witches is a tale yeah. as old as time. Of course. I mean, the new Marilyn movie yeah. is exactly the same, right? It's totally fictional, but it paints her as deranged. Oh, of course. And it's just obviously clearly made by a misogynist who wanted to torment her even more on screen. I mean, it's when you, when you really kind of sit down and think about it and confront the depictions of women that have been fed to us and fed to all women throughout history that have not been written by us. I mean, I know Blonde is based on a fictionalised story by Joyce Carol Oates, but um, leaving that aside, women's voices are fairly absent in most mm. mainstream history, and that's by design as well. We, we weren't meant to be the ones who are documenting things. I, I read a great quote by the poet Adrienne Rich the other day, and she was you know, obviously a, a leading poet in the 1970s, lesbian, feminist, um, change maker, and she in this quote talks about how heterosexuality is taught to girls as their great adventure. It's thought to be the great adventure for women is heterosexuality, domesticity, children, et cetera, et cetera. And that is so true. Like that is how we are, the world is framed to us that we grow up and the biggest adventure we will have is finding a man who wants to marry us Mm. and having babies and becoming his wife and someone's mother. Men are fed the idea that the world is open to them for them to find themselves and to, to, to stake out their own adventures. Adventure, men do very well with marriage. You know, men are supported by marriage much more than women are. But marriage for men is never fed to them as being their their life's greatest adventure. Is yeah, to find a so wife true. And have so interesting. When you're thinking about obviously all of these topics, and because you could go in multiple different directions for, for a next book, for a next kind of even podcasts for your next piece. What it, What is it that inspires you for your next thought? What is it that takes your mind somewhere else? I do have a very busy mind. Mm. And the only way that I can kind of cut through the noise of that mind is to get it out on the page. Mm. Um, so it's like therapy. Sort of, yeah. And I guess each book has come at a point, which is true for many writers and, and artists and creators, in general, what's going on in my life yeah. at the time. So when I wrote Fight Like a Girl, I was um, I didn't have a child. I mm-hmm. was a, a youngish woman in the world, but I was reflecting still on my experience as a young woman in the world. And I'd also become known as a feminist writer. So I was wading through that swamp all the time. Yeah. So that was what I cared about. And then I wrote Boys Will Be Boys when I um, was I, I gave birth to my first child, my only child, seven weeks after Fight Like a Girl came out and I had a boy. And so then I started thinking about boys in the world and mm. the fact that everyone always says very comfortably that they're scared to have girls. Oh, we know it's too terrifying to have girls. We know what the world is like. But it's like, but who's doing it to them? Who's yeah. doing it to them? No one wants to talk about the fact that the people who victimise, and we know that girls are victimised by violence, but again, it comes back to that social desire to kind of ignore the elephant in the room. Like we're sexual violence is talked about, for example, is talked about as if we as girls just make the silly mistake of leaving the house without an umbrella and we walk into a rain shower and like, oh, God, isn't it terrible that you were rained on? Like Mm. you actually have to name who's doing it. And for the most part, the violence that women experience is perpetrated by men. Those men have families. Those men have communities that we know protects them. Mm. We see that all the time. I wanted to write a book to emphasise how important it is as parents of boys yes. that we intervene from really young ages. 100%. To disrupt the messages. Definitely. I've got two boys, two girls. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a, making sure those messages are throughout the family mm-hmm. is so clear and so important. And when you talk about yeah. consent and you talk about, you know, how to deal with a mm. breakup, how to, you know, all of that Absolutely. stuff, it is 
I mean, I'm like the the dad from American Pie. Mm-hmm. I'll sit there and I'll go through the embarrassing things and I'll talk at all the. So I'm like, it shouldn't these be anything are, that's off off limits when is, you're talking to your kids about these exactly. things. Exactly, and it's just like let's say it, let's get it out there, let's have these open discussions, and we all from the moment you can. If you start talking to your kids about consent when you think they're starting to have sex, you are ten years too late. Oh yeah, ten years too late for sure. So, um, so just to go back to your question, so, so I wrote that and then I found that after that I was like so, t- it was just wading through so much toxicity in writing that book that the next one I wrote I wanted to be really, I wanted it to be a, like revisiting the parts of myself that I knew were really soft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, be a bit more gentle yeah. on yourself. Yeah, so I wrote a book called How We Love which was a collection of essays about my life and about the different kinds of love that people have because I wanted to really emphasise that romantic love should not be given the state of primacy that we give it. It is just a kind of love. Mm-hmm. All love is important in its own way. Uh, and between Boys Will Be Boys and writing How We Love, I separated from my son's dad, uh, which obviously informed some parts of that book, which then leads us to book four, which I'm writing right now, which is about marriage and why it's really bad for women. <laughs> and I just also would stress that when I say marriage is bad for women, I'm not saying relationships. Like marriage is not a marriage is not a relationship. You can have a very equal, loving relationship. Yeah. I'm not against people having relationships. But I think it's important as women to be be able to look really critically at the institutions that we operate in. Mm. And historically, marriage served a purpose for women in the sense that the world was so unequal for us that for a lot of women it was the only economic option that they had. Sure. But they didn't have any choice about who they married. They yeah. were sold into it or traded into it. Um, everything that they had belonged to their husbands. They didn't have any agency over their bodies. It is for an institution that is rooted in the historical oppression of women to have then over the last 200 years, 200 years is as recent as the concept of love marriages yeah. has been invented. And for us wow. to now believe that the purpose of life is for us to find one person to love for the rest of our lives. Yeah. That's what makes a happy life. And obviously that is just unrealistic for so many people, for so many reasons. Then you add in all of the domestic inequality that we know that women experience in the home, particularly if they're partnered with men, the the economic instability that women have when they are um, dependent on men for money, particularly, and that's one of the reasons why we do have so many women who are at risk of homelessness because yeah. relationships that they've committed their whole lives to. Yeah, they break down and then they're and left, left with nothing. nothing. So it's a book about, it's called I Don't, and it's really a kind of championing of women's right to independence and autonomy and to have a life that is where the great adventure is not heterosexuality mm. or even like even queer partnership necessarily. You know, like I'm, I'm a queer person myself and I don't think that... For me, like whether or not I've, I've been with men and women, like I don't want any of those relationships to be the one defining point of happiness in my life. And if we can say to women, and particularly young women, I think, you know, you can be, you don't have to not have love and relationships, of course, have those things. Mm. But you can be and do so much more than just aspiring to what the culture tells you is important for you, which is that your career and everything, that's fine. But the great adventure of your life will be the day that you walk down the aisle and you get married to the man whose underwear you can wash forever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> true. And over the years, obviously, there have been some incredible women who have done amazing things. Who do you look up to and who has inspired you? It's so hard to narrow that. You know, I hate, I'm not, I'm not saying I hate your question, but I... I find it so hard when I'm asked questions like that, like which books do you recommend, which women, et cetera, because I just think that there's so many. Who are, are there so any, amazing. though, that you're just like that 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 moment or mm. that person or that conversation or that doesn't even, you know, I just think it's it's fascinating, isn't it? Who I remember when I was at school and reading Maya Angelou's books mm. and thinking, wow, that is just it's like changed my life Mm. a I wanted to then be a writer but I was just like she it has gone through Mm. adversity she's gone through the most horrendous time and she's come out with this beautiful voice and what an inspirational person I Um, think you nail something with that that you know one of the things that's so important for all of us to do is to reach outside of our own spheres to read about people whose circumstances have been very different to our, to our own, to have curiosity about them. Mm. You know, I think if I was to give a list of 
I think that people should read Maya Angelou. They should read Bell Hooks. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you're going to put anyone on your list, put Bell Hooks on your list. Yeah. Um, Roxanne Gay obviously is a contemporary feminist and academic and thinker who's incredible and has already got a huge um, audience of people. But one thing that I've been finding while researching this book is, um, you know, feminists of 200 years ago had a lot of problems in terms of the fact that the, the society that we lived in was, you know, a lot of the suffragettes who are, I mentioned before, the suffragettes, great, they got the vote for white women. You know, there was a lot of racism in the suffragette yeah. movement as well, which I think is a fact that should be confronted and should be addressed and understood when you're looking at, um, when you're looking back to figures in the past as well. But I've been able to discover through researching this book some really interesting anarchist thinkers and, uh, you know, poets and women who existed 200 years ago who were fighting against yeah. the same things that we're fighting against now. You know, like Voltairine de Clare, who was an, an abolitionist, a marriage abolitionist in, you know, 200 years ago and uh, saying like the most incredible things about women's agency and independence. And so that's a name that I would list. Um, I think modern in, in sort of contemporary times. There's some really good documentaries that people can watch about. So Ava DuVernay has a great documentary on Netflix, I think it's still on, called The 13th, which is about the 13th Amendment in the Constitution in America, which basically says that they will outlaw slavery except if people go to prison. And in America, who goes to prison more than anyone? Black people, because it's a incredibly white supremacist society, as is Australia. So the work that I think that black women in particular are doing to, uh, you know, to discuss women's rights but also to discuss whiteness Mm. is something that I find incredibly valuable because it's all too easy for white women like me and, like, you can't ever make any assumptions but I think everyone in this room is white. It's, It's too easy for us to think that our struggle is the only struggle and that once our struggle is solved, that's fine, the door behind us can shut. But actually, um, you know, Audre Lorde said, I am not free until all women are free, even if their struggles are very different from my own, or even if their shackles are very different from my own. And I think that that's something really important to go forward with and remember as well, is that when we say that feminism is about supporting all women, it's not about supporting all women, even the ones you don't agree with at the top who are making terrible decisions. It's about supporting all of the women who have less power at the bottom of the pile who are subject to way more oppressive forces in in the world and who, you know, are continuously oppressed by some of the choices that even women make. Another great feminist thinker that I I love is Ajoma Oluo, who wrote a book called So You Want to Talk About Race. And she's a um, Nigerian-American woman. And she said, look to where your power intersects with someone else's... Sorry, look to where your privilege intersects with someone else's oppression. That is the piece of the puzzle that you have the power to help destroy. Yeah. I love that. That's uh, yeah. uh, that makes your mind sort of blow up in terms of how that connects to all these things and all these thoughts. And obviously, International Day of the Girl is, um, you know, everyone celebrates International Day, Women's Day, which is brilliant. But we at Mecca really feel passionately about International Day of the Girl, and it's its tenth anniversary. Um, and what does it mean to you? And how do you think? we should all be championing girls along the way that Mm. Clementine at school who found her voice, what and how do you think we can help make change? I mean, it's every day should be International Day of the Girl, obviously, but I think that it's really... nodding her (laughs) head, aren't you, Kerry? (laughs) It's really important that we remember that all of this change happens so glacially Mm. it's really easy to become overwhelmed by how slowly things you think things are changing because we still experience so much suffering even in this country where you know women like us have an enormous amount of privilege we're still not inoculated against violence against the risk of financial destitution there's so many things that we still will be fighting for and then that's before you even add in the fact that around the world Girls who are growing up in um, the global south, for example, are 
they have way less opportunities to access education. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason that they have less opportunities to access education is because it's assumed that the, the domestic workload will fall to, fall to them. So they're already by the age of nine doing significantly more it's domestic terrible. work than boys who get to go to school. Um, and I figured it out actually in, in Boys Will Be Boys. I had this stat in there where I figured out that if you combine all of the additional hours that women are doing girls and women are doing globally every day it's 900 900 hours extra a day that they're doing which is kind of hard to wrap your head around but um yeah unbelievable we can't just have you mentioned international women day and i think that it's really important for us to look at structural change Mm -hmm. policy change and for us to be politically active because it's too easy to have corporate messaging around things like International Women's Day, International Day of the Girl, where it's just about, you know, empowerment, which is kind of a flimsy sort of term these days, because what does that really mean? Like empowerment for who? Yeah, you need the you need the action. Yeah. And I think that's the, you know, we've I think we'll we'll have put um ten thousand girls through secondary education through our program. But we are about to unleash a whole new sort of element to our Empower program, which I think is gonna be, you know, hopefully be game changing for a lot of girls around the world and women. Yeah, and it would be incredible actually if more corporations with the power to do that. Instead of focusing on getting women on boards, fine. If if people care about that, fine, whatever. But actually used the money yeah. that they have. Really, at the end of the day, often it comes down to money. Yeah, and exactly. And who, who has it and where are they willing to put it? Exactly. And I think the power of being able to put your money where your mouth is mm-hmm. and being able to do that in a way which actually changes those however many thousands of girls or women that we can, I think is is incredibly thrilling because it means that you actually can help help them in some way. And if we can help educate women and girls, then I think mm. that's a it's a step forward other than just to your point, corporate messaging. That's really great to hear that Mecca is doing that. I love that because you know, obviously education is so important to empower girls all over the world. The more education a woman is able to, a girl is able to access, the less likely she is to end up in an early marriage, which means the less likely she is to end up being an early mother of multiple children, which leads me to the next point, which is that the ability for women to have control over their bodies and their reproductive, for people who have reproductive capacity to have control over the number of children that they have, to have access to family planning is so essential. So it's frightening to see what's happening in America yeah. at the moment with devastating know, the, and we just should not be foolish enough to think that we don't have as religiously crazy a community here in Australia but we can't ever not be vigilant against attacks on our mm. rights to control the size of our families because that is one of the key differences between women who have you know longevity in life health for their family members mm. health for themselves is how many children they can control they have and that may be none Mm, absolutely and I think that's an amazing note to finish on Clementine thank you for such an incredible conversation today I am like feeling quite emotional because I think this is like girl power we this you're making the moves to make change and it's incredibly exciting to hear so congratulations on everything that you do and don't let those trolls get you down (laughs) I never would that was one of the questions that Kerry has in here is like how do you handle that but you've just said it you never would let them but it should never happen anyway but well done for just being yourself and leading from the front and keeping your voice out there and loud if they try and troll you if they push back against you to to any women listening to this if they yell and scream at you because they don't like what you've said keep going it means you're on the right path you should be making them angry you should be making them scared and i I just want to say thank you so much for having me it was (laughs) thank you you. love to have you today it's brilliant thank you Thank you for listening to this episode of Mecca Talks. If you liked what you heard, follow us on your favourite podcast app and you'll be notified as soon as our next episode becomes available. Don't forget to rate, review and share this episode with your friends. And I'm on the roll.